Well, welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today I'm joined again by Dr. Brian Walsh, who is uh, going to enlighten us about a number of things, but primarily on some of the amazing uh, pieces of information you can harvest from your blood test. Imagine that. This is information, most likely, if you're seeing a conventional physician, he will not tell you, and he probably doesn't even know more than likely. So you definitely want to listen to this because it's going to be fun. So welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. And, and I'll even add to that, if you don't mind. I, I think that there's a lot of functional medicine practitioners, unfortunately, uh, that aren't aware of this information as well. And it's, it's not anybody's fault, just quite frankly. Um, I think it, rare is it that somebody really digs into some of the, the scientific literature and pulls out some really useful stuff. And, and I think that in the functional, nutritional, integrative medicine world, uh, it's high time that, that we, we take what we have been doing with blood chemistry to the next level. Okay, so how did you get so smart? How do you know this and they don't? Well, first of all, I don't think I'm very smart. Um, <clears throat> I, I honestly think that most of us uh, don't really know as much as we think that we do as, an, as a medical industry, even as an alternative medicine industry. Um, but, you know, my, my story, I will tell you in a sort of a shortened version, is I graduated naturopathic school, really excited to practice. And, and, excuse me, let me interrupt there for a moment because there's two types of NDs. There's the ones that went to the four-year schools. Yep in school and generate typically a debt of a quarter million dollars by the time they graduate. And there's ones that do the night school version. Or, or if you end up marrying one of your people in school, <laughs> then it's twice as much. Because you so you your wife's an ND too. That was the most expensive but best date ever. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so I went to one of the four-year universities. And, but, you know, to be really honest with you, um, at this point in my career, and I know that you can understand and respect this, it really doesn't matter what, what letters are after my name. Um, no, knowing what I know, I could practice as a medical doctor, as a, as a physician's assistant, a naturopath of any variety. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really about the knowledge and not so much mm -hmm. about the degree. The, the degree was just kind of a ticket to be able to yeah. play the game in the Absolutely. first place. So I went to school and I was really excited. I had a long history in health. I was a fitness professional. I was a massage therapist. I did all these things. I was reading nutrition books even as a teenager. Um, and this was kind of the pinnacle for me. Um, Went to school, sort of had a lackluster education, which I didn't really fully realize until I got into practice. Um, I had had a, a, a course in blood chemistry, uh, it's a very standard course, where you have your, your Fischbach is the, is the text, and it has all the markers, and if they're high or they're low, here's all the different various pathologies it could possibly be. So shortly after I was in practice, I was looking at blood chemistries, and if, if something wasn't outside of the laboratory reference range, I had no comment on it. And if things were outside of the laboratory reference range, I had to look them up. And it was really frustrating to me. So my wife and I looked around and we found a, a functional blood chemistry weekend. It was put on by a supplement company. Uh, we went to it and it was great. It, it, it was at the time exactly what we were looking for. But then the problem was, there was a few what, problems. What was the company? Was it Biotics? Uh, well, it was, no, it was Apex. Is, Apex. I'll, I'll say it. Um, it was, but if you know the story, um, the reference ranges, so they, they promoted these, these optimal or functional reference ranges, um, which were originally from biotics, um, but there wasn't any scientific validation to these. There was, you know, they sort of came from the, the, the ether and there were, you know, it, when asked where do these ranges come from, there was never really a solid answer. And that didn't really sit well with me, although I think the idea of a narrower set of reference ranges makes a lot of sense logically. It'd be nice to have some sort of science to back that up. And then the problem was, is I was looking at these labs and 
I realized I have no idea what these markers even are in the first place. I mean, what they really are. And I'll never forget that the first marker I decided to delve into was albumin. I'm looking at a lab and I'm thought, well, what really is albumin? I mean, what really is the physiological story of albumin? Where is it made? Under what, are, what conditions is it made? And to people that, that have been looking at labs for a while, they may think that that's, that's easy. But when you don't know what you're doing, it's brand new. And what I found, and this is, you, you know, as many times in your career where you have sort of those, those, those moments, I realized that when I knew the whole physiological backstory of albumin, just as a mark, not even as a blood chemistry marker, that I didn't need a book to look up as to why it was high or it was low. When you know the reasons that it's made and, and where it's made and why and how it's stored and how long it lasts and it's, it's half-life, all these things, you can look at a lab and you can by yourself think through why albumin might be high or low. And it was kind of like that movie The Matrix where I sort of had, had this taste of what it was like to really fully know a marker. And I thought, you know, I had, this was you know, well over a decade ago and I haven't stopped. Um, I then realized I need to learn the physiology of every single one of these markers as best as I possibly can. And the more that I knew that, the more that started to make sense about labs. But in so doing, I also came up with, found a lot of issues. One is this ideal of optimal or functional reference ranges, which, which we can talk about. Um, they were sort of arbitrary, but it turns out that there's a lot of published literature that suggests that an optimal, there's a, there's a better reference range for almost every single marker that you can find on a standard blood chemistry. Here's another, here's another story though. This is a real problem. When I originally learned this, I had been taught things like bilirubin, that there's no such thing as a low end of bilirubin, that there's no functional range for a low end on bilirubin. If it, it could be 0.1 and that's still okay. But when I started digging into the physiology of these markers myself, I couldn't believe what I was reading. I, you know, I couldn't believe that, that men and women should have different ranges for AST and ALT. It's very clear in the literature um, that these markers that we're using for fatty liver, like AST and ALT, are horrible at it. They'll never, they'll never find fatty liver with AST and ALT. And that things like bilirubin, which I was taught is fine if it's low, is, couldn't be further from the truth. That bilirubin, and we can talk more about this if you want, but low bilirubin is very clearly associated with an increase in all-cause mortality. And then the question is why, and then you learn that bilirubin is uh, it's a, it's a lipophilic antioxidant, mm -hmm. and it's a marker of lipid peroxidation, which I know you, you know at this point, but you know, go backwards. And, and this, is, this is total bilirubin. Total bilirubin, right, right, right. Um, you know, so, so here we now have this marker of lipid peroxidation, essentially, which is an incredible marker to have, that when you look at the literature and you can look at what level might indicate that excess lipid peroxidation is taking place, the question is, is how many practitioners know that information? I didn't. I had to teach myself this information. How many practitioners, either conventional or otherwise, are not using bilirubin for the marker that it should be? So... so I'm curious, how did you teach yourself? Since you didn't learn it at a course, you, I'm assuming, took the tools that you were given uh, during your naturopathic training and your intuitive wisdom, and you somehow collated this information. So what was your process? Well, you want to know the truth. Um, I, I like to do things through. I, I started from scratch. I just, I cracked open a physiology textbook and I just started going through it again. I, I had, I had, I had physiology. I had physiology as a prerequisite into the program. I had a couple of semesters of physiology in the program itself, 
But I also think that the way, and this, this is a whole other conversation, but the way that things are taught in education today are not very conducive for retention and for learning and for understanding and putting things into context so that you can understand these things later. Like with biochemistry, you know, you could teach glycolysis. Mm-hmm. You can have students memorize all the 10 enzymes. But then what's the context of that? What's the context when it comes to how uh, glucose regulation or, or insulin resistance or the offshoot of the pentose phosphate pathway and, and how those might interact in some ways? Uh, and so there's no context. And so I think that that's why I didn't really learn. I didn't understand. I didn't, I didn't fully get these things. And so I just, started, I just started with some physiology textbooks and I just started <laughs> chapter one and went through the whole thing. And when I did that, I went back and I did it again. And then the second time I learned more than I did the first time because I had a, be- a better foundation and, and I, I haven't stopped, quite honestly. I think I've graduated from most physiology textbooks, but um, and, now, and now you're pursuing the literature because when the you literature is the best place review in the literature, boy, they they're better than the textbooks. It's, it's, it's state of the art. You know, it references sometimes it's just a few months old and you know, they can tell you what the, the state of the knowledge is at that point. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think that the, the literature is really the only place to go nowadays for myself. Yeah. And uh, thankfully we have PubMed and uh, you know, when we both started, it was very difficult because unless you had academic credentials and could have access to these articles, you'd be, I mean, you'd have to be independently wealthy to afford for looking at them. But absolutely. now a good percentage, a third to a, maybe a third of them are free. Yeah. Yeah. Thank goodness for all the open source ones that are available nowadays. That's, that's certainly helpful. And, and to be associated with academic institutions is also helpful. Do you have an association or do you actually? Yeah, no, I'm, a, I'm an instructor at the, um, or actually an associate professor at the University of Western States. Oh, great. Well, that, that helps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I've, I've, you know, it's, um, I don't want to tell too much of my own personal story, but I, um, I've wanted to teach, for, I've had teaching within me for a very long time and, and I've taught everything as a naturopath, quite honestly. Um, at the community college level, I, I taught, uh, I've taught at a couple uh, graduate level uh, courses and for different uh, institutions. So I, I think that, that that's something that's actually important to me. It's one thing to be a clinician. It's another thing to be a teacher. But I think when you do both, mm-hmm. if, if you're a clinician who teaches, then you can teach clinical stuff. It's not just, not just you know, theoretical. Um, <clears throat> they, they really feed into each other. So it's, it's something that, that I've always enjoyed. So teaching your passion, and we may want to take a small tangent now and, and uh, go back to it later, but one of the reasons we're doing this interview is that you are actually going on a tour, not only by yourself, but with yeah. your wife and your children. You've got a new motorhome and you're traveling around the entire country and you're going to be teaching people. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. So thanks for that. Yeah, <clears throat> um, I'm not sure how the idea came about, which I, um, is probably a good thing. We, I don't know if it's passion. I don't know if it's uh, crazy or if it's ambition. I'm not sure what it is. But we're taking, we have, we have five children, age 10 and below, 10, 8, 6, 4, and 2, and a dog and my wife, and we're packing it up, we're going in an RV, and we're spending basically March through October uh, hitting almost 30 different cities throughout the U.S. to deliver a weekend workshop, seminar, put on by myself, um, in the areas of functional medicine and blood chemistry interpretation. Um, you know, I've, I've talked to you about detox, and some of my thoughts and programs on detox, I'm going to be putting some of that in there. Um, I have some, some work that I've done in glucose regulation. And so really just trying to take the best of what I've learned in functional medicine, more so in blood chemistry interpretation and 
packing in a, a whole weekend of that. And I actually should add, this is, this is the educator in me. Um, I, I haven't seen a, a weekend seminar that's ever done this. I mean, this is full of, this is, by the way, is just totally us. It's not sponsored by anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally okay. us. Um, I've actually added to this to make sure people get the most information they possibly can. When people purchase tickets, they get access to five hours of video, whiteboard video, where I teach the physiology of the markers in the first place. So that if somebody is a seasoned veteran and, and hasn't had physiology for a long time, or someone maybe didn't get as much physiology as they needed to, when everybody goes into the weekend in a given city, they've all watched the same videos and maybe even rewatched them. Um, and I don't go into the highs or the lows of the different markers. I just, I just teach the physiology so that when we hit the 16 hours for the weekend, that everybody's on the same page and we can just hit the ground running and, and really start talking about content. So I'm really excited about it. Yeah, so am I because uh, I'm actually going to one. The one that's closest to me is in Jacksonville, Florida. Jacksonville. So I'll be attending that one also. Cool. And just to share my own personal experience on learning postgraduate. Uh, I mean, I, the stuff you're teaching is not taught in any medical school. And very similar to my process after I graduated medical school was like 10 years later, I started to appreciate natural medicine and really focus my direction towards that area. And the way I learned it was to going, going to these types of educational interventions. And, and there's two types. One where a number of different speakers present, you might have 10 to 20 speakers over a weekend, and one where there's just one. And I found personally that the one where there's only one individual, he can, you can really, really learn. Not just you can't learn it's the other one, but how, what can you teach someone in an hour when you have a large depth of knowledge to share? It's, it's almost impossible. That's why I get somewhat frustrated. Someone gives me 10 minutes to speak or 20 minutes, I mean, what, what are you, you going to tell them? I mean, you know, it, it's really restrictive. So I'm really excited to be uh, uh, attending your event and learning more about this topic and would encourage anyone who's a healthcare clinician to attend one of these in the 30 cities that you're going to be presenting at. Yeah, no, and I, I, I'll just uh, piggyback on that. I, I totally agree. When, when you're doing it yourself, and, and I'll just go ahead and say it's not, again, it's not sponsored. I've been to seminars where it's sponsored by a lab or it's sponsored by a supplement company. And it's just the nature of what it is, is, you know, the studies that they will show you are biased in order to help promote whatever it is that they're selling. And they tend to leave out the other ones. And, and you know, I've, I've, information has been inaccurate when I've gone to some of these things before. So it's, it's just, it's literally just me and my family. Um, we were even, we'll see what happens. We were joking around about having the, the kids and my wife all have the same shirt. Like, uh, and, and, well, because they're going to be taking tickets, you know, they, yeah, yeah. they're, they're little, but you know, why not? Let's get them to work and, and make sure people's waters are filled or whatever it might be. Um, the 10 year old's kind of this real crazy tech kid. You know, he might be the AV guy. I don't know. I have no idea yet. We haven't done this thing yet. So, um, yeah, but the, I, I can tell you, and that's why I added those, those five hours of video first is so that we could just jump right in and talk deeply about this stuff. And so people yeah. go away at the end, you know, for whatever the price of the ticket was, that they might use this stuff for 10 years. They may yeah. have the references and the, and, the, and the materials that, that they can use for so long that they actually learn something, that it's not just watered down, sexy sounding, cool, you know, sound bites, that it's actually usable information. Well, that's really great. So why don't you share with us some of the highlights of what you're going to be presenting? And you've given us a few examples, but maybe you can share a few more, even go deep yeah, on sure. one to get people a taste of what it's going to be like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Well, one of the things, and, and I, I, I guess I could share my screen, but I actually don't know where this little graphic is right now. But what I did is I created a, an infographic that uh, I basically call it the cellular theory of health. And the, the foundation of this, going back to basic physiology, is you're familiar with the levels of structural organization and, you know, time permitting, which I think we have. I'll just go through this really quickly. So you remember that the levels of structural organization as taught in a physiology uh, course, it's usually in chapter one of every physiology text. Mm -hmm. And, but nobody pays attention to this. And I remember it was years ago I was looking at this and I thought there's really some wisdom in this. And the levels of structural organization basically answers the question what we're made up of on a physical level. And so on the smallest, most microscopic level that cannot be further separated in nature, we're made up of something called atoms, chemicals, or elements, things found off the periodic table, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, phosphorus, calcium, magnesium, molybdenum, all those things. Then if you take two or more atoms, chemicals, or elements, put them together, then you get, I could quiz you on this if you want, then you get a molecule. No. People think of things like water, but glucose is a molecule, an amino acid is a molecule, a triacylglycerol is a molecule. The smallest molecule in the universe, hydrogen. Right. Molecular hydrogen. Yeah. Uh, not atomic. Right. right. So then, then you take molecules and you put them together, then you can get a macromolecule. So if you take a bunch of glucose together, you can get, a, you can get glycogen. You put a bunch of amino acids together, you get a protein. You put a bunch of, well, I always say three triacylglycerols, a glycerol molecule, uh, and uh, you get a, tri, a triglyceride, for example. Oh, so, I'm sorry, three fatty acids and a glycerol, then you get a, a, a triacylglycerol. Um, then if you take these macromolecules and put those together, then you make organelles, and that's all the parts of a cell that we always talk about, the, the mitochondria and the endoplasmic reticulum, the ribosomes and nucleus. Then if you take those and you wrap them in a phospholipid membrane, then you get what's called a cell. And this is the first part so far that's fully capable of life when you think about it. And I'll take the levels of structural organization on, and then I'll come back to the cell in just a second. Then if you take a bunch of cells and put them together, you get tissues. There's only four different types of tissues in the body. There's connective, neural, muscular tissue, and epithelial tissue. Then if you take the four tissues of the body, you put them together, you get an organ, like the stomach has all four, the heart has all four, most organs have all four to some degree. Then if you take organs that have a similar function, you put those together, you get an organ system, like the digestive system, the respiratory system, the integumentary system. Then if you take all the systems, then you get an organism. And I'll take this further on the weekend, but you also have communities and populations. Now, now here's the whole point. And I, and I go into this and I'll, I'll share the infographic I have in just a second. Uh, and this is, it's not the, the foundation of the core, well, it's the foundation of the, of the whole weekend, but I, I talk about blood chemistry the majority of the time. So think about this for a second. So when somebody has a sign or symptom of any kind, the org, like the organism has a sign or a symptom. And then you go backwards in the levels of organization. Let's say they have uh, PMS or their issues with infertility. Um, in those cases, it's not the whole organism, it's an organ system. And what would it probably be? You'd probably go towards the endocrine system, right? But an organ system is really made up of a bunch of organs. So in a woman who has PMS, it's probably not her thymus, it's probably not directly her adrenals or her pancreas. We'll go ahead and say it's probably her ovaries. But according to the levels of organization, an organ is really four different types of tissues. So then if this woman who's suffering with something, what's dysfunctional? Is it the epithelial cells? Probably, because those are the hormone-making cells of the ovaries. It's not the connective tissue. It's not the muscular tissue of the ovaries, and it's not the neural tissue, probably. But epithelial tissue is really just a bunch of cells. So really then, where is the dysfunction in this woman coming from in the first place? Is the cells. And to put it another way, 
healthy cells make healthy tissues, healthy tissues make healthy organs, healthy organs make healthy organ systems, and healthy organ systems makes a healthy organism. So I've created this model, uh, basically that, and one could argue about healthy organelles like the mitochondria and the endoplasmic reticulum, but that if you have healthy cells, then you're going to have a healthy organism because cells make tissues, make organs, make organ systems, make the organism. And so let me try to share this infographic with you really quickly if I can. And so this is what I'm going to, uh, this is the foundation of the whole weekend because what this basically is, is that there's, when you think about, okay, so cells, what do cells need? They need three things. One is they need to be able to make energy. And actually, if I get really fancy, wow, I don't know. When's the last time you've had someone get fancy like this, huh? Yeah, you're going to paint right on the screen, huh? Uh, great. Okay, so over in this area here, the cells need some. They need to be able to make energy. To make energy, they need oxygen. I'm not going to go into details right now, but they need oxygen for the electron transport chain. They need the right substrate, glucose or fatty acids. They have have to have healthy organelles, and then they have to have the right micronutrients in order to be able to run all these biochemical processes inside the cell. If one of those things is dysfunctional, you have a dysfunctional cell. Then you have dysfunctional tissues, dysfunctional organ, organ system, and organism. So let's say all this is good. The second thing you need is they need to be protected from things that could otherwise damage them. So let's say everything over here is good, but over in this next area, infections can cause cellular dysfunction. It is immune system dysregulation. Here's an antibody can cause cellular dysfunction. You have uh, reactive oxygen species here is another one, and I'm blocking my last one. I can't really circle it very well. Or toxins of some kind. So you can have all the nutrients, all the substrate, all the fatty acids, metabolic flexibility, the micronutrients that you need, but if you have toxin exposure or reactive oxygen species or immune system dysregulation or infections, then you'll cause cell dysfunction. Again, cell dysfunction, tissue dysfunction, organ, organ system, and organism dysfunction. And so let's say both of these are doing all right. Then you have down here is it has to be the right environment. So the pH of the cell has to be good. The hydration status has to be good. And a couple topics that I'm really excited to go into is cell communication has to be, if you, a cell can't communicate with another cell, then it basically doesn't exist, similar to us. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and those studies on infants, for example, if they're not communicating or interacting, they, they don't develop. And then here is, this, this is a little bit more esoteric, but the papers on this are pretty awesome, is, um, is community. That one cell in isolation in our body is not going to do very well, that it's a, a community of cells. And then you extrapolate that to all the papers that are done on purpose and loneliness and connectedness and, and all those types of things that um, it's an area that I'll get into as well. And then the last bit is that your genetics, your epigenetics, your exposome can, can influence all of these things. So, so, so that's the foundation of the weekend. And so then what I do is I'm going to, I'm going to go into how you can evaluate most of those components using a blood chemistry. Now, the reason why is, as you know, a blood chemistry, one of the, one of the areas that I think that we really mess up in, in the alternative medicine space is we, we don't pay enough attention to this scientifically validated, internationally respected, the most accurate of any lab, inexpensive lab test is a blood chemistry. And, and we instead jump to these really expensive fancy with with beautiful colorful pdf reports um and nothing can tell us even close to what a blood chemistry can tell us if we know that we're what we're looking at so in terms of highlights what i'll be talking about the blood chemistry um i have over the years compiled uh, i don't know how many papers now well over 100 papers that have uh, optimal reference ranges for 
easily most of the majority of the major markers found on a blood chemistry and even some ancillary ones like A1C and some other, some other type of markers. Um, and that, the value of that is tremendous. So what that means in English is there's the, the laboratory reference range that we as practitioners rely upon. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that there is a evidence-based set of optimal reference ranges that if you look hard enough in the literature that are uh, better at predicting so that something is, is abnormal than the laboratory reference range uh, is provided. So um, like glucose, for example, the, yeah, of all the stu- studies that is, I've looked at. This is one you can do at home. Yeah, the glucose, well, and that's, that's great. There's a couple, there's a great study uh, looking at postprandial glucose levels. It was so ele- elegantly done. Um, but, but basically, I am of the opinion that fasting glucose should be anywhere between around 82 to 88. And that's based on about four or five studies that I've looked at, also with physiology. And I know that people debate this and say, well, you know, 75 is healthier or whatever it might be. But the study, and I've looked at a lot, and, this, and when you look mm-hmm. at, physi- and you have to consider the physiology, for example, mm-hmm. like when does glucose, uh, or when does glucagon kick in? When does insulin start to shut down? Because if we look at what the body would do on normally, then we, we have to take that into consideration and then add upon that some other papers that I've, that I've looked at. And, and like I said, people don't have to go by my, that, that's just based on all the papers that I've read, mm-hmm. about 88, uh, 82 to 88 is, is a pretty solid uh, glucose. Um, fasting, in terms of, of non-fasting, which basically means that somebody should take a glucometer at any point of the day, even if they just ate, I don't care if it was an hour ago or two hours ago or even 15 minutes ago, and should be anywhere between about 82, since that's the low end, and about 130, based on this one really elegantly done paper that I'll show during the weekend um, that was done on, on a couple different meal types postprandially, and they, and they followed continuous glucose and to see how high glucose. Oh, but the inclusion criteria of, of the, uh, the people in the study was phenomenal. They were super healthy. Um, so that's one example. Uh, other things, so I'll, I'll go through all the different reference ranges, optimal reference ranges, uh, and show you the papers that they came from and, and why I, I came up with the, the conclusions that I did. Like here's an example. Um, AST and ALT, mm-hmm. what's, what's the, the lab range for that typically, the upper end, since last time you looked at a lab? It's 100-something. But usually, well, 40 to 50, I think, in terms oh. of on a, on a standard lab. Okay. But the papers that I've looked at very clearly show that, A, men and women should have a different AST and ALT reference range very, mm-hmm. very clearly. And B, is that it's not much above 20. And, mm-hmm. and here these labs are reporting 40 or 50 as an upper end, but, but there's multiple papers that say that an AST and or ALT and GGT, for that matter, shouldn't really be much above 20. And so when they start to go above 20, but they're lower than 40 or 50, nobody's, nobody's calling them out on that. Um, GGT, we've talked about that before, and I know, I know you've had some people on talking about GGT. Mm-hmm. GGT, very clearly, uh, the, you know, there's been meta-analysis done on these with over 600,000 people included entirely. And they'll say things like GGT in the physiologic range is an increased risk of, of all-cause mortality. What that means is high normal, that mm-hmm. below the laboratory reference range, you still have an increase in all-cause mortality if your GGT is a little bit high. 
well, we, we need to modify that reference range because how many doctors are looking at GGT and saying it's okay when, in fact, according to the literature, it's absolutely not. And the same is true for phosphorus and calcium and bicarbonate. And like I said, I've, I've looked up, spent a lot of time looking up reference ranges for all these things. Um, well, can, can we tangent to iron for a bit? Because one of the reasons I initially delved into GGT was its influence on iron. Uh, and excessive iron will tend to raise GGT. It's another marker other than ferritin. And, and it's my perception that, and I'd, I'd be interested in your input on this too, but I believe that the, the, the lack of appreciation of measuring iron is probably one of the biggest faults of conventional medicine because it's such a massive risk factor for disease, cancer, heart disease, Alzheimer's. Yeah, you know, it, it, it is. Um, I, I would be curious to see the papers that showed that GGT was a marker of iron. Oh yeah, I did a whole interview on it. Uh, and I only say that because my understanding is, is elevated GGT, so there, there's a few pieces of this. Elevated GGT, um, there was a, a paper done in 2012, showed that the, the red blood cell or erythrocyte membrane is a target for GGT. And that when GGT as an enzyme, it doesn't attack it, but um, modifies the erythrocyte or red blood cell membrane, then some of these elements like iron, for example, can become more liberated. And it's when GGT is elevated in the presence of iron or copper, by the way, and that's super clear, they do the same thing, that because of that, it's called a cystineal uh, glycine is liberated from glutathione via GGT that that in the presence of iron or copper initiates the Fenton reaction. And that's when you get massive oxidative stress. Mm -hmm. And so one thing I haven't been able to fully figure out is if GGT, if iron and copper are more normal, is less of an issue. I still think it's a marker of xenobiotic exposure, mm -hmm. and a marker of, of uh, hepato, uh, hepatocellular glutathione deficiency, which is a really awesome marker to have. Oxidative stress, essentially but most likely glutathione, oxidative stress due to glutathione deficiency. It's a very inexpensive test. Oh, it's, it should be on every single lab. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if it's, I, I have not seen that it's a marker of excess iron, but that when GGT is elevated and iron or copper, and I would add to what you said about copper not being evaluated more often, mm -hmm. copper and iron are equally as, I don't know, toxic is the wrong word, but damaging in, in the fact that they can cause so much oxidative stress via primarily the Fenton reaction. All right, so we, we use a TIBC yep. to iron count and yes. evaluate iron, but what are you evaluating for copper, ceruloplasmin? Yep, that's the primary one and it seems to be the most accurate one mm -hmm. for now. And what's your ranges on that? Uh, I haven't found, that's one I haven't found. And, and I'll tell you, so here's how I come about many of the optimal reference ranges. So it was, it was funny, I, I, a little ignorant of me, I suppose, is when I first, I wanted to validate the optimal reference ranges. I wasn't happy with these sort of obscure ranges that people had, you know, just kind of come out of the ether somewhere. And so naively, I, I started looking into the literature to look for researchers that were having conversations about, uh, improved reference ranges, you know, that maybe the reference range we're not using is not adequate. So let's talk about a better one. They're not having that conversation. <laughs> They're more interested in disease. And so, and I was, I was really frustrated because I was trying to look for these optimal reference ranges for things like albumin or things like a well, ferritin or, or any of these things. Um, but then, but then it was by accident. I stumbled across some, a, a paper that was looking at considering many cases a U-shaped curve in a lot of these markers 
and mortality. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, I don't want that because I'm interested in optimal health and you know, mortality is just so morose and it's so depressing and it's so the opposite end of what it and is that so I have. it's so inevitable. <laughs> well, they're too, right. But then, and then, I, so I was like, no, I want optimal. I want, I want researchers that are talking about a healthy reference range. But then when I started looking at this, it was really interesting. I thought, well, what is the antithesis of, of optimal health? Well, it's mortality. It's death. And when I looked at the ranges that many of these papers were talking about, it was a tighter set of reference ranges that was offered by the lab. And it basically said, and, and choose the marker, it could be phosphorus or bicarbonate or even chloride, any of these things that people don't really spend much time on, sodium, potassium, glucose, it doesn't matter. All across the board, the reference range is generally tighter than what's offered by any of the major labs. And what it clearly showed in fairly large population studies that were tracked over a long period of time that you're, you had an increased risk of mortality if fill in the marker was above or below the certain range. And I thought, all right, well, so here I was after this optimal reference range, this healthy reference range. But in reading these papers, I thought, well, if my phosphorus or chloride or whatever was, was out of this range, that's indicating that I have a higher risk of death. And so, therefore, being within that range uh, is, is good. And, and so, so that's where a lot of these ranges came from in the first place. Now, I go back to seroloplasmin. Um, I haven't really found much. I, I am constantly looking for, for studies on to find a better, more optimal reference range indicating health. Um, I haven't found one for that yet. So I just okay. use the reference range for that. Well, let's go back to iron then. Let's tell us what your uh, – share with us your analysis of the iron uh, literature and – what your perception of the ideal reference ranges are. So, you know what? Um, you, you chose a hard one. <laughs> Why not? Oh, you got yeah. the expert here. No, no, no. Iron has been tough. Um, so I've, I've looked at So first of all, for, for men and women, okay, look, I should say this. The, the reason why I said the thing about mortality is because you have to look at the end point that you're really most interested in. I'll take a quick tangent and I'll come back to iron is um, let's say, for example, you wanted to find an optimal reference range for hemoglobin A1C, and your endpoint was diabetes. Well, there's papers on this. There's no low end for A1C when it comes to your risk of diabetes. The lower your A1C, the lower your risk for diabetes. And therefore, one could make the conjecture that there's no such thing as an A1C that's too low. But then if you switch your endpoint to... Um, cardiovascular disease or cancer or all-cause mortality, then all of a sudden there is a low end for hemoglobin A1C. So, so you need to be careful at the end point. And I say that because I mean, this is all by recollection. There was a, a paper on iron, and I think it was only on men, and the end point was colorectal cancer. And I think, and they were looking, if I remember correctly, at ferritin levels. Well, that's legit because, you know, where is a guy going to lose his iron? He's not going to, if it's from a bleeding situation, it's going to be a gastrointestinal bleed since hopefully he doesn't have a, a menstrual cycle. Um, but so, so that was so colorectal, but that was the only type of cancer. And I think I'd have to look back at that study that they looked at. Um, but for, for men, for both men and women, it seems that a lower, and, and I, I, you know, I'll even tell you, my slides for this during the weekend even have a couple of question marks because there, there, it, you have, there's some gray area of interpretation of all the different studies on it. But, but uh, ferritin, the low end of ferritin, I think for men and women should be around 50. Uh, in, in women, 
it's uh, I think a little bit more clear clearly around uh, 115. Men is a little bit trickier though. I think men there's some papers that suggest as high as 200 is okay, um, but I would tend to err more around 150 in terms of uh, ferritin for, for men and women. Um, serum iron levels. Here, my, my problem with serum iron happened really early in practice, and I saw somebody that had a serum iron level that was way above the laboratory reference range initially, so much so that I had her run additional markers, uh, an iron study panel, and then just, just a few days later, her serum iron had, had come down to a very healthy within the normal laboratory reference range. And so I have, I'd love to hear your feedback on serum iron. I, I have found it to be relatively transient, which is why I, I tend to use ferritin and TIBC uh, a little bit more. I think it's important, but you know, I, I've reached a different conclusion, uh, and, it, and it may need a more careful analysis of the literature, but for, for all cause mortality, assuming that you don't have a bleed, which is going to cause premature, uh, uh, artificially low ferritin levels, I think it should be a, 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 somewhere between 30 and 40, at least for men. Um, yeah, ferritin. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, you, that's, that's my belief. And I could be wrong, but, I mean, it, it, because, I mean, you, you need iron. Obviously, it's in all the cytochromes. It's in your red blood cells. And you, it, it's essential for life. If you don't have it, you're going to die. But if you have too much, it's going to cause excessive um, oxygen. So it, it, the key is to find balance. And, and I think 80 to 90% of the population of adult men and postmenopausal women have at levels over 100. And some quite significantly more than that, maybe a, a quarter to a third are ser seriously elevated. So fortunately, it's one of those things where you don't need to supplement. The, the, the no. therapeutic intervention is pretty straightforward. Just give away some blood. Yep. Yeah, no, I, like I said, on, on that one slide where I have some question marks on that, um, one could make an argument that ferritin should be uh, lower than 100 in both men and women. Yeah. Um, and the low end, like I said, from what I've looked at, uh, and I, I, I have to take a closer look at the papers, bottom end is around 50 in, in ferritin for men and women. But, but then at the same time, and I think this is a good conversation, is, is you know, the value of ferritin as well as looking at other things um, like TIBC, or I think that's mm -hmm. more, more valuable than transferrin. Uh, there's, there's transferrin receptor that, that can be tested as well. I, I th think that what we're doing is not doing a good enough job of evaluating all the markers related to iron. Um, and, and I think, you know, it, it's, it's difficult to just make a, a, a statement about, you know, ferritin must be higher right. above or below because TIBC will really tell you a lot about what the body is interested and then there's the bit about what form is iron even in in the first place is it you know is is it in is it in a uh, bindable transportable form that can be used for heme or you know the, the role of copper is to iron more usable and so um, you know do you have a lot of iron in fact I had a patient recently um, you have a lot of iron but your body can't use it or is it in a usable, stored, storable form and therefore uh, may not be as, as potentially as damaging? So I think that there's, there's more to the iron story for sure, mm -hmm. sure and really have to take a better look at it. Yeah, it's just something that's rarely screened. I mean, unless a person goes in with anemia, and, right. and even then you can have complications. I, I happen to have beta thalassemia, which is mm -hmm. genetic anemia, somewhat similar to sickle cell. And 
for those of us who have it, typically of Mediterranean origin, uh, they're regularly, and I would say probably most likely the majority of the time, misdiagnosed as iron deficiency anemia, and they're Absolutely. given iron as a supplement. So it's just, it's just outrageous. Really. Well, and one of the things that I, I teach during the weekend is copper deficiency anemia for that very reason. Um, Interesting. The, well, no, it, but so... But the, we don't know the copper, copper ranges. <laughs> well, uh, there, there's, some, there's some insights that one can get. And so... Copper, uh, I don't know how deep you want to go into this. Copper deficiency anemia looks identical to iron deficiency anemia. Interesting. Even, even things like ferritin and iron and TIBC. And the reason why is because cop, one of the roles of copper is to, to turn iron into the form that's transportable and usable in heme synthesis. Mm -hmm. So without copper, the body has iron, but it can't use it. And so the, the body and its wisdom knows that it can't use it. And so things like TIBC will go up because it's looking for iron. Even though it's there, it can't, it's, it's, not, it's not the usable form of iron or the transportable form of iron by transferrin. And so copper deficiency anemia on a blood chemistry look identical to a iron deficiency anemia, every single marker. One marker that can be different is neutrophils. Um, that neutrophils tend to be low when there's copper deficiency. There's so many things that could influence uh, a neutrophils. One tip-off for someone is it's a it's the iron deficiency anemia that's not being corrected by giving iron. Mm -hmm. That oh I've 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 had iron deficiency anemia and I take iron and I eat red meat and I take spinach and I eat vitamin C with spinach and nothing changes. Mm. And in that situation, one wants to consider look consider a copper deficiency at the same time. So, right, I, have a, I got a question on the copper. Does the copper reduce the iron? If so, does it do it directly, or does it do it through an intermediate as an enzyme, something like NADPH? Good question. Um, it does reduce it, and I'm, I'd have to look. I'm 99% sure it does it directly. Okay, that's, that's interesting. I need, to, I need to look that up. Don't, yeah. don't, uh, don't take my word for that. Yeah, because it, it, it just these molecules have to collide somehow and share electrons. I, I mean, you know, I say that. I, the second I said that, it's got to be, I, I would say, it's probably an enzymatic reaction because it, it if well in, in that that's a whole other topic but we're we're basically according to the literature wrong about what antioxidants do that there's really no such thing as antioxidants vitamin e and vitamin e definitely in terms of scavenging radicals but the whole that's the whole argument i'm not going to get into that now but that's the whole argument is that here you have these these things inside of a cell that are bumping around on each other and that that Enzym enzymatic reactions are catalyzing these things so fast and mm -hmm. that we, we naively think that vitamin C is going to get inside of a cell and just happen. It's like at a huge party where there's, there's a billion people inside of the room and, and one person wants a, wa a glass of water at one side, you are, have that glass of water on the other side. The chances of you making to that person and handing them the water is basically not going to happen. So why do we think that this magic antioxidant with this extra electron has happened to bump into the thing inside of itself? Well, well, well I think that magic. would be true for exogenous antioxidants, ones that you supplemental. But if you hormetically induce your body to make them, then they're targeted. Oh, sure. Where you need them. Well, getting back to things like bilirubin or uric acid or, or, uh, or, or uh, ADPH, my favorite. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a good one. Um, yeah, the pentosphosphate pathway. So, um, you know, then the, a couple other things that, that I, I talk about during the weekend was 
another thing that, that really bugged me is I would look at a blood chemistry and, and I was positive that there was more information that could be gleaned from it than was actually on the page, if that makes sense. And in, in terms of calculations, there's got to be calculations or ratios or different things that we could use. And I, I'm sure you're probably familiar with whole blood viscosity. I had read some, some arbitrary paper on whole blood viscosity and, and, and it, was, it was so compelling about the role of blood viscosity on a variety of diseases. I mean, my gosh, if you haven't seen the papers on whole blood viscosity, it's associated with everything from, from uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, gallstones, bone density, osteoporosis, uh, diabetes, the level of fatty liver in people with diabetes, cardiovascular disease, uh, endothelial dysfunction, you name it. And so then you read all these papers, you're like, why are we not measuring viscosity? And I, I thought, I thought you know, there's got to be some, someone out there that has figured out a way to calculate viscosity just using basic blood chemistry markers. Mm -hmm. and it turns out, yeah. absolutely. But see, and again, I hadn't been taught this stuff. It was just me. I'll never forget. It was, I was up wait, late one night. My kids had, had woken me up, and I was just thinking about this, and I started looking. And <laughs> of course. Lo and behold, that's, that's, you know. that's what most people think about when they wake up at 2 in the morning. Well, I, but I was, but you don't understand. This has been a passion. I just, I was, I, there had to be, because when you think about what contributes to viscosity, so, which by the way, goes back to basic blood. What is in blood? Yeah. The most abundant thing in blood is protein in terms of, you know, there's, it's mostly water, but then after water, it's protein in there, albumin and globulin and fibrinogen. And, and so I was thinking that protein has to contribute to this and proteins on a blood chemistry and lo and behold, there's a validated calculation that looks at both low shear rate and high shear rate um, viscosity that's been validated numerous times that has been compared to actual whole blood viscosity. And you know the two markers that it needs, whole, uh, total protein and hematocrit. That's it. Wow. And the, the, the studies on viscosity are so darn clear and the conclusion on some of these papers that talk about this calculation is, I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the type of thing where if you, you read enough of these papers, you think, why, why are we not running this? Why are we not figuring this out? And the conclusion in some of these papers basically say viscosity is such an issue. In fact, there's one paper, it's a hypothesis paper, that hypothesizes that blood viscosity doesn't only contribute to type 2 diabetes, but is causative, which is kind of profound to say, bring up some interesting argument. But it's such a thing. And they say it's so easy to calculate and it's been validated that every physician should be running this on every patient. But yet where is that information? I, well, I came across this late one night and, and I, I had that thought. I was like, why, are, why have we not been talking about this, this validated calculation on viscosity, which is an incredibly important parameter? And then you go back into a clinical practice and you say, that I can tell you more about what's going on in you than is actually on this lab because calculations exist. You've probably heard of the fatty liver index. I mean, fatty liver, there was a, I mean, if we have time, HDL has, has been a, a beef of men for a long time. Um, there was a paper that was looking at high levels of HDL and actually calling it dyslipidemia. That usually dyslipidemia is high cholesterol, high LDL, low HDL, abnormal triglycerides. But they were saying when HDL gets too high, and even if it surpasses LDL, we should be calling that dyslipidemia too. That's not normal. And in this paper, 
the inclusion criteria was that you had to have fatty liver diagnosed by ultrasound. So everybody in this paper had fatty liver. And they didn't report on this, although they, they had the table of the data. The average AST and ALT and all these people that had fatty liver was in the 20s. And what, what are doctors usually using to diagnose fatty liver, the liver enzymes, right? Mm -hmm. um, so thankfully, there's something called a fatty liver index that all you need is you need BGT, triglycerides, waist circumference, and BMI. And it's fairly specific, and it, it's uh, fairly it's pretty darn accurate um, as a, as an indication of, of fatty liver. So here, all you need is a waist circumference. You're, somebody calculate their BMI, look at their triglycerides and their and their GGT level, and you can, with some confidence, predict whether they have fatty liver or not, or at least from a from a clinical decision making perspective, decide if that's something that you want to pursue or not. And so, but where do you get that data off of basic blood chemistry? GGP and triglycerides are basically all you need. So uh, osmolarity is another calculation. You probably know this, but the, because of the way that water moves in the body, the, you have three major body water compartments. You have essentially plasma, you have interstitial fluid, and then you have intracellular fluid. And researchers don't disagree on this. They disagree what to do about it. They don't disagree on the fact that because of the way that water moves in osmotic gradients, that the osmolarity of your blood is actually reflective of the osmolarity intracellularly. You're not going to have an overly uh, hydrated or dehydrated cell, and then your plasma is not going to reflect that. So why aren't we running viscosity and osmolarity and calculating fatty liver index on people when we have the data that's required and these are validated calculations? So those are some other things that I, that I cover in the weekend. Oh, my last one that I want to tell you. Can, is, can, go ahead. Can, we, can you hold the last one? Because I just want to interject Anything. here. Because um, this is just beyond fascinating, which is why I'm so excited to attend your presentation uh, in, in March, I believe, in Jacksonville. But people this are not clinicians and we're probably in way over their head right now but a, a large number of the measurements as you're describing are actually calculated so there is another alternative and maybe you can talk about that now but remember the thing you wanted to share because we definitely want to get back to that mm -hmm. so i just want to interject that there that i think you offer a service where you can actually provide the blood test for the person themselves and take it to the local uh, blood drawing site and they'll get it. And you, then you run it through this program, this software program that's been developed that actually takes those, makes those calculations and makes recommendations. So do Does I have that, that mixed up or is that right? No, we don't. It doesn't have all those calculations yet. And we're still, we're still trying okay. to work through some of those things. That will probably be another, another call actually. Okay. Uh, no, I'm, I'm very, very excited about the prospects of, of that in the future as we work some bugs out for sure. Okay. Yeah, so, so don't get discouraged if you're... No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's common. And all, you'll be able to take advantage of this incredible treasure trove of knowledge. So yes. I'll, yeah. I'll get back to uh, where I, before I interrupted you. Well, the, the last one is this. I don't, have you heard of the uh, Intermountain uh, health, uh, Risk Score? No. See, and there again, there's the problem. And here, here's a guy like yourself who's more tapped into this industry than probably most anybody else, but yet you hadn't heard about this. And this was something that I stumbled across because I, I love blood chemistry. It is the best, most valuable, most accurate, most inexpensive test we could possibly be running 
and I get really frustrated as a, as a functional medicine or naturopathic uh, practitioner that we're jumping on these, all these really expensive, non-scientifically validated functional medicine tests when there's so much information that could be drawn from this. So what came across is it's called an Intermountain uh, Risk Score. And a lot has been done since I originally came across this uh, probably about five years ago. The short version is, is they, in a, in a hospital setting, tens of thousands of people have, have been gone through this. They created a score based on basic blood chemistry markers that should be on any, any lab test, uh, mostly a CBC differential type, and then a few chemistries like uh, sodium, potassium, uh, bicarbonate glucose is on there, mean platelet volume, which if you do Quest is always on there, but basic stuff. And what they did with tremendous accuracy was created a calculation. So let's say hemoglobin. Your hemoglobin was whatever marker or whatever value it was. You'd enter that one in. If it was above or below what their range they came up with, you might get uh, two points. And you enter red blood cells, and then you enter in a hematocrit, an MCV, glucose. And they calculated, and it has, been, it has been talked about and published and republished so many times, a, it's a mortality risk score. Uh, there's a 30-day, a one-year, and a five-year mortality risk, essentially. Now, hopefully most people aren't so interested in the 30-day or one-year, but that five-year mortality risk score is so valuable when you think about this because you might have somebody that's, let's say, relatively healthy that is, you know, self-prescribing a bunch of supplements, maybe exercising a little bit, trying to eat as healthy as they can. But physiologically, something's abnormal. They go to their doctor and everything looks pretty good. Even Let's say their glucose is good. If they were to enter in all these things, all these markers, and it came out with a slightly high score, that's an indication that not everything is going well. There was a, a paper, in fact, that was published based on all the work that this Intermountain uh, group has done. And I forget the exact title, but it was something along the lines of, in the genomic era, are we missing the low-hanging fruit? And this, this author commended this group for doing this stuff, saying, we are chasing the, the fancy, shiny objects and the newest, sexiest things and the best tests in genomics and metabolomics and the biome and all this stuff. Yet right smack in front of our face is the most inexpensive, scientifically validated test. And what this group has done is created a calculation where you can enter in those parameters. And you can basically, and again, if, if the antithesis of optimal health is death, you can see where you are on this on this score, and and maybe if there's if your score doesn't come up great, that you can take it to someone that will actually take a look at what you're doing and make some recommendations to try to improve some of these things. Mm -hmm. So that's just another example of there's more data inside of a blood chemistry test, and the blood chemistry test is actually even reporting on things like yeah. osmolarity, things like viscosity, things like the fatty liver index, things like the Intermountain Risk Score. Do you have a link to that or a formula for the, to make the calculation? I don't think they publish the, their formula for obvious reasons. But if you type in Intermountain Risk Score, one of the links that comes up is a calculator. and it's Oh, perfect. You enter in the variables and you hit calculate, and I think it tells you. Wow, perfect. Unless, unless you read some of their old studies, I think you could figure out the formula, which I'm <laughs> not saying anybody has or hasn't. There's a good chance it's well, I was writing my, one of my uh, previous books. I, actually, my last book is coming out in May. 
called KetoFast. I consulted with you and you gave me some insights on how to make a calculation of one of the researchers. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, you got to dig in and you got to read it all sometimes, but it's, it's helpful. Otherwise they, they patent it and try to hide it. And, and that's fine. I, I respect that. You know, I, I would say I might do the same thing in the, in those circumstances, but at the same time, um, the, the information is usually out there. So this is really exciting. Uh, let me just make a comment and I'll let you close, but I, I'm thinking that uh, if you're a clinician, you simply must attend this if you're treating patients. And there's almost no excuse not to. It's in 30 cities in the United States. It's most likely within driving distance of where you're, where you're at. And if it's not or you're busy that weekend, well, you can go to another city you want to and you can fly there. Imagine that. But it's definitely something that's going to radically improve your ability to understand and make successful inter clinical interventions to improve the health of your patients what, relatively inexpensively. I mean, you're, we're not talking fancy, sophisticated tests. This is general lab work that you're already doing in your patients. So that would be my plea to you. Again, I'm going to be going to the Jacksonville event if, uh, or presentation. So if you want to meet up with me there, I'm glad to connect. But uh, why don't you add your final words of wisdom or anything else that you think is important that we miss? Well, no, I, I'm glad you, I really do appreciate uh, all your support on this. Um, you know, people don't go door to door anymore. It, we all, we deliver everything online and, and emails mm -hmm. and all these things. And yeah. I, I'm kind of old, I'm a little too young, I think, to be old fashioned, but I'm old fashioned. You, know, you open doors for women and teach your kids to, to thank you and, <clears throat> and have respect for their elders. But another one is just let, let's go to these cities to people so that they, it makes it easier for them to attend and they don't have to worry maybe about flights or hotels as much. Um, and teaching face-to-face -face and, you know, and, and not just doing the online stuff, which I've done and it's fun and it's useful and it's valuable and it's accessible. Mm -hmm. Really get in and the questions that are asked and the dialogue that takes place and um, really excited about that. And in terms of the cost, I have to admit, you know, I've, I've, there are, and without mentioning names, there are you know, weekend seminars that are in the range of $1,500. There's so much money. I've seen these ones and, and the amount of clinical information you get is, is somewhat limited sometimes because there's multiple speakers. Um, you know, the, the cost of this, my goal, I'm trying to support my family, but my goal is to deliver so much information by lunch on the first day and that five hours of pre-event videos that it totally has covered itself. But, but not even considering the cost because, because everything else after that's just important. So I really do hope to see people um, these events. You can go to drwalsh.com. There's a small link for tour up in the, up in the top navigation bar, and that'll take them to the right page. Yeah, we'll definitely have a link on the page too.